happy Easter to each and every one of you here, to those who are listening online. Happy Easter to all of you um, here 2017. It's a good, good day. Very good day for those of us who are in Christ. I want to pose a question to us today. So here's the question I want to pose. Why did Jesus Christ come to die? Don't know if you've thought about this before, but it's worth thinking about, especially on this day of all days. Why did he come to die? Now, the frequent answer that I get is, he died so that my sins could be forgiven. And I need my sins to be forgiven so I don't go to hell. Because I don't want to go to hell. Not false statements. Not a a false narrative. Not a false picture. Just not the whole picture. There are many reasons why Jesus Christ came to die. For most of us in our biblically illiterate American Christian world, we only know like one or two. Came to forget how I got my sins forgiven, so I don't go to hell. That's why. There are many, many reasons why. And some of you may remember last year I addressed in my Easter sermon one of the many reasons why he came to die. So this is kind of a part two of what I hope will be a, a 48, 50 part sermon series over the next 48 or 50 years. Why did he come to die? That's the question that we're going to answer at least in part today. Beyond just forgiveness of sins, beyond just going to spend eternity with the king of the universe one day, I want us to look at another reason. And so we begin in Revelation chapter 5. Not to be confused with revelations. My seminary professor said, don't ever let me hear you add an S to the end of this book. I've never preached from this book before. It's usually ones that pastors shy away from because, quite frankly, it's intimidating. So, I understand this might not be a typical gospel passage text uh, that you might be expecting, but hopefully one that will just make you in awe of your God. Revelation chapter 5 The Apostle John is writing this, and he has been given a vision. He has been allowed to see things that have not yet taken place or occurred. He finds himself in the throne room of God. And he begins accounting for, verse by verse, the things that he has seen and experiencing. And we begin... Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So the first thing that he sees is there's a throne 
And there's someone on the throne. The first member of the Trinity is on the throne. We see that from the backstory in chapter 4 that God is the one on the throne. And in his right hand, there's a document. There's a scroll with seven seals. And, and the scroll, it's got writing on both the front and on the back. Apparently, the author had much to say. It's also worth noting at this point, within Roman law, in order for something to be introduced as evidence to have some type of legal standing, it had to be sealed with seven sealed, seven seals by seven different witnesses in order to establish credibility in a court of law. And so here's John, he sees the one on the throne and he's got a scroll in his hand and it has writing on both the front and the back and it is sealed with seven seals. And then verse 2, And I I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So, so the second scene that he sees, there's this angel, it's a mighty angel, it's a powerful angel. He's shouting, he's proclaiming. The, the word proclaiming here is the word in the New Testament that's used to describe preaching. The word used to describe preaching, it actually is the word really associated with a town crier. One that would have a, a good vocal stamina. Town crier, he'd, he'd be in the town and he'd be like, Hear ye, hear ye, gather all around. Hear ye, hear ye. And he'd gather everyone around because he had some important message that he needed to deliver to the people of the town. And so the angel, this mighty angel in verse 2, he's proclaiming this important message. He's asking the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? The scroll that is in the hand of the one on the throne. There's a scroll. And so he's making this proclamation. This search begins throughout the universe, from heaven to earth, to the depths of the earth, to hell and Hades. And back, this search to find one who is worthy to open the scroll. And the search continues. And this mighty angel continues making this proclamation with this loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll to break its seals? The proclamation goes out through the entire universe. And silence follows. No one steps forward. No one answers the call. There's countless thousands of angels, no doubt, hearing this proclamation. They don't step up. The righteous dead of all the ages are there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, no doubt, hearing this proclamation. Job, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, Paul, the apostles. They're all hearing this. Not a one response to the angel's proclamation. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one responds. No one raises their hand. 
No one volunteers. No one steps forward. The search throughout the known universe is not going very well. And at this point, we look at verse 3, it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Which, at this point, John is just emotionally wrecked. And he begins crying. And I don't mean like, you know, you're, you're in the theater and you're watching Lone Survivor and it's like, that's not what I mean. Like, you know, cause if you've watched that movie or a movie like that, it's, it's tough to, you know, fight that back. It says that he's weeping loudly in verse four. And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. Not a one. No one's worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. And John really wants to know what's in the scroll. You see, until the scroll is opened, God's purposes, as one commentator observes, remain not merely unknown, but unaccomplished. God's purpose, until the scroll is open, they don't just remain unknown, they remain unaccomplished. And John, he's been brought up with this messianic hope. This hope that derives all the way back to the Old Testament. This hope that, this promise that one day God would assume this kingly role with power and reign openly on earth. And, and that just hasn't happened yet. You remember when Jesus came, many people mistook him to be this political leader, to overthrow the Romans, to reestablish Jewish national sovereignty. And he didn't come to do that, right? He, he came like, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And they mistook him. Because the first time he came, that's, that's not... It's not why he came. And, and John knows that he's going to be coming back. John knows that's, that's a true promise. That one day he will rule and reign openly on earth. That the wicked will be punished. That the wrongs of the oppressed will be addressed. That the persecution of God's people will come to an end. Their sufferings will come to an end. Their, their faith will be vindicated. John's bawling his eyes out here because it appears to him at least that these future actions of God, this messianic hope, has been indefinitely postponed. And so he's bawling his eyes out. He's weeping loudly. It's worth noting it is the only time in Scripture that tears are seen in heaven. See, John is weeping and crying because he wants to see a world free of evil. He wants to see a, a world free of evil, free of sin, free of death. That's what he wants to see. And what has he seen up to this point? 
He hasn't seen that. Think about what John has seen. He's writing this story 95 A.D. It is believed that at the point that he's writing this story, he is the last surviving apostle. He's a very old man here when he's writing this story in 95 A.D. And think about what he's seen since since the the time of the Gospels, the, the stories they recount. He was discipled by Jesus. He witnessed his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And he knows, he knows that he's coming back. You know, I often hear people say all the time, man, we're living in the last days. And I'm like, well, I know we're living in the last days. We've been living in the last days since the time of the apostles. They thought in their lifetime that Christ would return to rule openly on earth. That's what they thought. And week after week has gone by, month after month, year after year. Maybe he's coming this year. Not this year, John. And what has he seen and witnessed since that time? He's witnessed and seen his beloved Jerusalem and the temple destroyed by the Romans by General Titus in AD 70. Looks like ground zero. He's seen that. He's seen his friends. He's seen the other apostles, if not seen, heard about their deaths. John's the only one, according to church history, that did not die a martyr's death. What has he seen? He's seen the early church struggle, just flounder in the water, just trying to stay above, gasping for air. You read the first two, three chapters of the book of Revelation. The church, it's not doing so well. It's being persecuted from without and dealing with sin from within. And it just seems like everything is going badly. That's how some of you guys feel right now. Like, Like, it, you just can't catch a break. You wonder why John's bawling his eyes out right now. He longs for the promise that the Messiah will come back and rule openly, that he will crush evil and sin and death, and it just hasn't happened yet. Everything that's happened, it hasn't been really good. It seems like things are just going from bad to worse. And he, at this point, after the proclamation's made, I can just imagine he's just there, and he's just crying and bawling his eyes out because they can't find anybody. They've searched the universe, and no one is worthy to open the scroll to break its seals. Yeah, I think I'd be bawling my eyes out too at that point. And then something happens. One of the elders comes over and says, John, John, stop crying. Now, the identity of the elder is somewhat of a mystery, whether it was a creature, whether it was a person. Um, one of the views is the 24 elders comprise the from the 12 sons of Jacob who made up the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles. But 
Even that view is problematic because they say, well, of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, is Joseph one of those sons? Because he received a, a double blessing. And we know he, there's no tribe of Joseph because there's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons instead. So is he one of them? Or the, tw- the 12 apostles, is Paul on that list? Or is it Barnabas or is it someone else? And, and so whether it was one of them or a creature or whatever, someone or something comes over to him while he's bawling his eyes out. says, John. John, stop crying. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. John, stop crying. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the offspring of King David. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. John, there's someone here to open the scroll. You don't have to cry anymore. What? The line of the tribe of Judah is conquered. John, weep no more. Gets up. Okay. Fighting back. Hot mess. And, and, and then verse six, he sees a, a rather strange sight. Very strange sight. This is what he sees next. And behold the throne. Excuse me, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's strange. And at first glance, it seems like a disastrous mismatch, especially if you keep reading, you get to chapter 12, and the, the great dragon, the enemy comes, and you're like, oh man, this is going to go bad, right? Dragon and lamb, like, this is, this is a disastrous mismatch, but except for one thing, this is not any ordinary lamb. There's a lamb, and it's standing there. And it's alive. But it looks like it's been dead. It looks like it's been slain. You say, what does that look like? I don't know what that looks like. I've never seen a lamb that's alive that looks like it's been slain. That that looks like it's been dead. And then to make it even more strange, it has seven horns. As one commentator notes, the horn is a common symbol of power occurring frequently in the apocalypse. And then it's got seven eyes. But John gives us an interpretation to the seven eyes. He says, they are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Well, that helps a little, John. More would be helpful. Seven eyes, right? They represent the seven spirits of God. So if you glance for a moment, I'll read out loud, chapter 1, verse 4. And chapter 4, verse 5, it helps give us some clues about the, the seven eyes. On the Lamb. So chapter 4, verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then you look back to chapter 1, verse 4, and it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I think it's 
probably most accurate to understand the reference to the seven eyes of the seven spirits of God as a reference ultimately to the Holy Spirit in all the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a very Trinitarian scene going on here in the throne room before John. A very Trinitarian scene. Next verse. And he went, verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Significant contrast in verse 7, especially if you read chapter 4. Chapter 4, everyone's bowing down in the throne room and worshiping the first member of the Trinity on the throne and the lamb in verse 7 just walks on over, takes the scroll out of his hand. The lamb has no need to bow down to the one on the throne. As John seems to view and consider the lamb to be just as much God as the one who is sitting on the throne. And so he takes the scroll and the details and the events of that scroll are laid out for us in chapter 6 to 8. If, if you want to keep reading after the service, this is what happened next. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There is this heavenly celebration that is now taking place in the throne room of God. This explosion of song and music. Good thing they have the harps there. That'll come in handy in a moment when they start singing. But they're, they're said to have the, the golden bowls full of incense, which are said to be the prayers of the saints. I don't know if you've ever been to a rather high church, uh, a Roman Catholic, or Orthodox. They use incense in their services. I think the idea is for it to smell good. Sometimes people's allergies react negatively. But if you've never been in those settings, just imagine... A sweet aroma. Maybe it's a candle or a filet mignon or whatever. <laughs> but a sweet aroma. I don't know if you've ever thought about your prayers, but, but John gives us an interpretation here. There are these golden bowls filled with incense, with this sweet aroma, which are said to be the prayers of the saints. That when you pray, Christians, your prayers are... Sweet and pleasant aroma to the one on the throne. So, verse 9, the goal of redemption is about to be seen. The question of why did Jesus Christ come to die is about to be answered. This spontaneous outburst of worship as the Lamb takes the scroll from the one on the throne. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language 
and people and nation. He is worthy. He is worthiness. And the fact that he is worthy is the fact that he was slain. You think about in verse 6, right? Verse 5, the elder said, John, stop crying. John, the, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, is conquered. He, he's here to open the scroll to break its seals. And he gets up from crying his eyes out. And there's a lamb. And it's standing there. And it looks like it's alive. But it's been slain. It's been dead. You say, well, why, why has it? Like, why does it look that way? Because it has been. Why is the, the lamb standing there? It's alive. But it looks like it's been slain. Because it has been slain. A lot of people got it confused the first time Jesus came. He came like a lamb led to the slaughter for a very specific purpose and mission and plan and reason. And that reason was to purchase us, to ransom us. Why did Jesus Christ come and die? For those of you who are in here who are Christians, he came to buy you, to ransom you. The, the word ransom or, or purchased here is, is a word used in the, the New Testament that is, here's the picture. It describes slaves in the marketplace being bought and then set free. Why did Jesus Christ come to die? He didn't come to die simply to make salvation possible. He came to die to purchase you, to ransom you, to buy you like a slave in the slave market so that you might be set free. As John writes earlier on in chapter 8, 35 of his gospel, he says, So if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Why did Jesus Christ come to die? That He could purchase you. That He could buy you. That He could ransom you. Because we were all slaves to sin. Slaves to death. Slaves to our enemy. And He bought us at a great price. The Lamb is worthy because the Lamb was slain. That must have been truly remarkable for John to hear this. At a time when things just weren't going very well. He's seen friends, or at least heard of friends, being executed. Jerusalem is like ground zero. The temple destroyed its rubble. Year after year goes by. He gets older and older and more of his friends and the apostles are being killed off and slaughtered. And the early church is just barely making it. And you wonder why this old man is bawling his eyes out. What great news to hear that the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Maybe some of you feel like John. Maybe things in your personal life have just been kind of messed up. Not not going so well. In fact, the forecast is just bad for like the rest of the week, the rest of the month, whatever. It, it feels that way, right? Just emotionally 
taxed, and exhausted. Your life's upside down. You look at the world. Things are pretty messed up. They are. Only getting worse, I imagine, I guess. And it's just... It's just exhausting. And you look last week. Last Sunday, in Egypt, a bomb goes off. A bomb in a church. In a church. And 49 people are dead. They're just dead. And 100 others injured. And it just seems like, man, this has just kind of been a long week. It's kind of been a long month. And you feel like John it just seems like everything's just pressing down on you. And you're like, God, like, are you going to show up? Because I don't know how much more of this I can take. Oh, this must have been great news for him. Right? He's there and he's, uh, he's bawling his eyes out. And the elder says, don't, don't keep crying. You don't have to cry. It's going to be okay because the lion of the tribe of Judah is conquered. He can open the scroll. He can break its seals. God's purposes no longer remain a mystery. They no longer remain unaccomplished. So they're going to happen. All oh, this must have been such great news to, to hear, to be reminded that the people of God come from every place at a time when the church was so small. The church was so fragile. Persecution from without, sin from within. And to hear this, that worthy, worthy is he. Worthy is he. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Yes, the church is going to make it after all. Despite bombs going off and killing people, it's going to make it after all. And yet, for many of us, when we think about, all right, why did Jesus Christ come to die? And we explore just one, one issue today that he came to buy us, to purchase us like slaves from the slave market. Not just make salvation possible, but to secure it for us. When you contemplate these truths, for many of us, it's like, so whatever. It's just a a nice little detail in your Bible story. Like all those little Sunday school lessons that you, you know, used to hear growing up. And you really don't care at all. It's whatever. But it shouldn't be. It should make a difference in our lives. And people often ask me, did Jesus Christ come to die for us or for him? And I say, yes, he did. Yes, he absolutely did. You look at verse 9. Look at that for a second. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. We are a ransomed people for God. And most of us, that doesn't make any difference in our lives at all. And yet I I think about Peter and what he says. He says, for you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet, for many of us, we spend more energy, more effort on other things than proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and delight. We spend more energy and more effort not proclaiming that message as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, we spend our energies proclaiming social justice movements, and touting political parties, and other things. Let me put it in perspective. Sometimes it's helpful in saying why Jesus came to die by explaining reasons why he did not come to die. Let me be really clear. Jesus Christ didn't come to die so that your life would be more comfortable. He did not. You know, people talk about being blessed. That word's used 112 times in the New Testament. Not one time does the word blessed refer to material prosperity or wealth. Jesus Christ did not come to die to make your life more easy and comfortable. Just so we're clear. Jesus Christ did not come to die so that you don't have to change. He bought you. He purchased you like a slave at the slave market. And for many of us, it's like, oh, that's nice. It's just so comfortable, right? Anybody says they're a Christian doesn't really mean jack. Anybody says it. Jesus Christ did not come to die so that you don't have to change. Lest you forget what Peter says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may, that you should proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Once you were a slave to sin, once you were a slave to death, once you were a slave and he bought you, he purchased you, he ransomed you. But for many of us, it's just a nice story. Even for those of us who call ourselves Christians, it doesn't make any difference in how we live our lives. Let me take it one step further. Jesus Christ did not come to, to die to be the poster boy for your social justice campaign or your political uh, ideas. He didn't. Now, there are some good social causes. I'm not going to argue with that, but... He didn't come to die so that he could be the poster boy for your conservative Republican Party. Yeah, I'm making some people annoyed and uncomfortable right now. No, I don't really care. <laughs> Jesus Christ did not come to die to be the poster boy for your progressive Democratic Party. I remember when Hen I think Henry had asked me, do you think Jesus Christ would support Black Lives Matter? I said, no, I don't think Jesus Christ would support that or any other political like movement of social justice or social reform because that's not why Jesus came. He came, lest you forget, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Everybody thought, right, that he's going to be this political ruler, overthrow the Romans, reestablish Jewish national sovereignty. And he came to die. Why? So that he could purchase you. So that he could ransom you. You want change? It happens through what he did for us. You want true change? 
It happens when God changes rebel hearts. Not when some political leader is elected in D.C. Don't forget that. This is change. The gospel is change. Rebel hearts being changed. How does it happen, Jesus? Because, as John says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. You purchased people. You bought people for God. Sin is no respecter of race. Sin is no respecter of where you live or what language you speak. That's really good news. He purchased people from every tribe, every nation, every language. But lest we forget and say, oh, that's nice. Oh, that we might remember Peter's words. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, I wonder if we would spend more time, more energy, more effort proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light as we do proclaiming other messages. How wonderful would that be? Why did Jesus Christ come to die? So that he could purchase you, so that he could buy you, that he could ransom you. That should make a difference in your life. That should be more than just a fun Bible story this Easter. So as the band comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you. So much. You're so worthy. I'm so thankful, God, that John wasn't left hanging there in the throne room after this search seemingly ended with no results of finding no one to open the scroll to break its seals. I thank you that you are worthy and you're worthy because you lived the life we couldn't live because you died the death we should have died because you paid the price we could not afford to pay to ransom us, to purchase us, to buy us. A debt we could never pay. So all glory, all honor, all majesty to you, to you alone, our great God, King. In your name, Jesus. Amen.